0: That's a really important point to make. You actually don't have to have any technical expertise to be incredibly valuable in informatics development. And I work with a couple of people who who absolutely pride themselves in having no understanding of the technology whatsoever, but they absolutely know what the system needs to do and they recognize good when they see it.
1: welcome to the second edition of the Digital Oncologist podcast. We're going to focus on something a bit different this time and instead of talking about oncology we'll be covering more on the digital technology and how it might make our work better. You may be thinking look I don't need to know about this stuff, I'm a clinician, I just want to do the day job but actually it now affects how all of us work, doctors, nurses, allied health professionals, and it affects the patient experience. Try and imagine a world where the patients can supply their information, data is shared between the GPs, the ambulance service, the care homes, hospitals, and then when the patient comes to clinic and sees you, you don't need to ask about the past history, the medications or who they live with, it's already in the system. And so instead, you focus on the problems they're seeing you about, and on top of that, you have a decision support tool to help you counsel them on the best treatment for their condition given factors such as comorbidities and the genomics of the tuber. And then once they start the treatment, you can monitor them remotely, know when they need to come in for review or when they can stay at home. All this is potentially not far away, but to get there, we need to take an interest in the digital platforms being developed and supplied. Today, I'm speaking to two clinicians who've gone further than that and helped to develop the platforms themselves. Ridium Bramley, a radiologist at the Christie Hospital in Manchester, and Geoff Hall, an oncologist at the Leeds Cancer Centre, have driven development of bespoke electronic patient records, that's the EPRs, which are supporting the care of thousands of patients whilst remaining easy to use and generally light by conditions that use them. No mean feat. I wanted to hear how they did it and what we need to do to make this happen everywhere. So hello again. I'm uh, speaking this week to... uh, two people involved in, in my own field of, of cancer medicine, but also with very significant interests in um, IT and informatics and healthcare. I've got Dr. Ridian Bramley, who's clinical lead for diagnostics, digital, and innovation at Greater Manchester Cancer, and also a consultant radiologist at the Christie NHS Foundation Trust. And also I've got Jeff Hall, medical oncologist at Leeds Cancer Centre, but also a CCIO, that's a Chief Clinical Information Officer at Leeds Teaching Hospital, and Professor of Digital Health and Cancer Medicine in Leeds. So we're going to talk today a bit about um, electronic patient record systems, some of the IT systems we use in the hospital trusts. Rydian and and Jeff have both been involved very significantly in setting up EPRs in their own organisations and more widely. And so I think they've got some interesting things to say about that. So so first to you, Rydian, could you just tell us a little bit about your involvement in the EPR um, at Christie and, and and where it is now. Yes, uh, thank you, Adam.
2: Um, I became involved really uh, with EPR at the Christie um, a few years into my consultancy, getting a consultant job in radiology. Um, we had a commercial uh, EPR in the at the time, um, which was very good for the patient administration functions, and we were but uh, lacking a bit, I would say, on the the clinical functions at the time and uh, I, I did some work with the team to develop a, a clinical portal um, to enable our colleagues working with cancer patients outside the hospital to be able to access the, the cancer record across the cancer network which covers a population of about 3 million.
1: So who could um, access that?
2: So, that was out for uh, primary care, for uh, other secondary care trusts uh, throughout our cancer network, and also out in care homes as well. Uh, If we look at clinical oncology, and you know that area well yourself, yourself, of course, um, but all of our clinical oncologists do uh, clinics at these uh, peripheral um sites and they needed to be able to access the the core cancer record um, but also there's all the acute oncology element where patients um, on treatment or or following treatment uh, presented the acute trusts and uh, there, there was a need for those clinicians to access the record so we started off by developing a portal over our existing electronic patient record um uh, but then uh, subsequent to that we identified some gaps and uh, there was a need to to fill those, uh, for a start, with order comms and result acknowledgement was a key area, uh, because we were having incidents of um, delays between us producing, you know, the, a report, for example, in radiology, and uh, the teams acting on it. So we we plug those gaps by bringing some of that external portal functionality in, and ultimately um, the portal took over. And uh, and we, this was all the,
1: basically uh, designed by and coded by yourself and a few others? I mean, how many people involved in this?
2: Yeah, so uh, the when we did the um, the external portal, that was a very small team. Uh, we, we put a bid in and uh, one developer um, did that project. I think a key thing for that though, was getting all the underlying data sorted out, uh, extracting the data from systems and transforming it so we could present it. Yeah. Uh, once we had that all available, um, uh, as I also develop, I I, I did the work to do, develop the internal portal, um, and that was a stopgap really to to cover off the, these these risks. It was the, you know the largest risk in the organisation at the time, clinical risk, uh, and it was effective and uh, the, the clinicians liked it. We we did some yeah. further development to able to collect clinical outcomes, which I, I know Jeff will be able to talk about further. But that, that was a, a key requirement working in a cancer hospital, uh, and we got uh, great clinical buy-in at that stage from from the clinicians, and
1: so now basically the the electronic patient record front end is sort of based on the system that you you developed um although you've got some patient administration functions still relying on a, a commercial product um and so so we'll come on to talk about a bit that a bit more a bit later um jeff you've done something a little bit similar at least but that, that has gone now wider so do you, do you want to just tell us about that
0: So um, we started to build um, a cancer information system in 2003, somewhere to collect the national cancer data set, and began to expand that to integrate data from the commercial PAS system, but also to bring in radiology, pathology results, blood tests. We began to use the system to generate our letters to GPs and initially started in medical oncology. It was quite soon adopted by all oncologists at the Leeds Cancer Centre. And then as Rydian has described, um, our surgeons went out to peripheral hospitals and needed to access the central record from the district general hospitals. So started to use our system in our associated cancer units. And quite soon the cancer units adopted it as their own cancer record for their own patients, which of course meant that there was then a Yorkshire wide record for patients as they moved around the region and data moved electronically between the two organisations. It was a cancer-only system from design at the beginning, but in 2013, the trust realized that actually half of Leeds Teaching Hospitals had started to adopt the cancer system because everything other than the cancer diagnosis was of enormous value to every other clinician in the trust, and the trust actually made a decision to further develop the, the system we had developed, known as PPM, as a trust-wide electronic health record and PPM plus a web-based version of the system we developed is now the electronic health record for the whole of Leeds teaching hospitals um, and has formed the basis of the integrated care records with all of the health and social care providers across Leeds. So. It is now used as the platform that integrates data from primary care, the secondary care, mental health, community care, social care, the ambulance service, um, and contains um, details of the health and social care of of every citizen within the city of Leeds, uh, and a sort of broader region still for for cancer records. So it's really moved quite quickly. When, when did you start doing the oncology system, and how many people were originally
1: involved, and then how long oh, has it taken oh, to get where so, you are so now? it's
0: it's moved quite quickly over 17 years so we started <laughs> in 2003 uh developing this system initially the the cancer system was built and developed with one or two clinicians um and then we had a statistician who was capable of 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 coding sql and was uh capable of building the database that sat behind the system. So for 10 years, it was a system that was developed and run by three people, with myself as the clinical input. Uh, When the trust decided to take on the system as a a trust-wide EHR, it now has a more significant development team, an integration team, a test team, uh, a um, implementation team. So it's a much bigger enterprise now, but there again, it's now It's now supporting an organisation with, um, you know, 1,200 beds and 12,000 clinical staff. So it needs to be a much bigger system. It is fascinating, though, how originally a
1: system can be designed by such a small group of people and produce such a a wide functionality. And it's only really when you have to scale it up that you need to get other people involved. Whilst you see the big EPR vendors sometimes struggle to... um, Design a user-friendly interface, and to and to make it acceptable for local teams.
0: I was acutely aware that when we started, so we we convinced nobody to take our system. We, we persuaded nobody to use our system. So. Um, basically people want us to use our system and we just gave them access to our system. And that's
1: great, isn't it? Because actually, often you try and bring in a system and your colleagues saying, please, we don't want to use this. This is clunky, difficult to use. I mean, just as an example, how did you bring in sort of um, how do you do letters in clinic? Do you dictate into it? Do you type into it? Um, So
0: historically, uh, um, we dictated uh, digitally onto digital dictaphones and our secretaries typed straight into the system. The trust was actually keen that we moved over to a commercial platform that had voice transcription. And so now the the digital dictation the voice transcription and the letter creation is all done in a commercial platform but then that data is um, sucked from the the commercial system directly into the ehr so it's acting more in a portal way at that moment so we can see the letters the second they're created we're just thinking of moving to at the moment it all happens through a secretary but i think Many of us feel that voice transcription has moved to a point that for many letters, we might actually do voice transcription at the, the point of dictation. So if a, a, a short letter is generated without without errors, then the clinician can approve and send it to the GP literally within minutes of the patient leaving the room.
1: Yeah, so we actually um, we've started doing that. On, we've got System C um, Medway, which I know is the PAS at Christie. And we've started doing noting on that. And we, in oncology, um, we dictate into a form for each clinic. So a follow-up mm-hmm. clinic, a SACT review pre-assessment clinic, um, that sort of thing. And it's so structured data, uh, we dictate into it. It does take a little bit longer than sort of mumbling into a dictaphone in a secretary making sense of it. But it um, it's fairly short. And actually, to be honest, usually I type or just use the drop-down boxes because you only really need to dictate when you're doing the longer you know, the spiel about, I talk to the patient mm. about their cat and they describe their whatever. Mm. And, and those sort of longer discussions you can dictate, but for shorter point form, as in chemotherapy side effects and things, you can just type it or use um, boxes, tick boxes or drop downs and things. And the nice thing about that, of course, is you can then analyze that data later. Uh, and I know, Ridian, your, your, um, Christy, what, what do you call the package at Christy? What do you call the
2: we, we call it the clinical web portal. Yeah. Uh,
1: the EPR. And I know that you built in analytics quite, um, quite early on. And I remember being quite impressed by the fact, you know, people put in new patient data and then can look back at, you know, what the survival rates are and how many patients they've got with certain conditions and things. And uh, how, how do you work with that structured data?
2: well that was the principle we we wanted to capture structured data to, to inform outcomes um and we wanted the clinicians to to own this um and to do that they needed to be able to get the data out themselves um so we, we involved them very closely in the design of what they were capturing so we were answering the questions that they they wanted to answer you know within their disease groups and teams uh, but at the same time um, making sure that we covered off what we needed for for,
1: for COSD for the uh,
2: uh, for the national. System. And
1: how do they get data out? Because that's the thing. You know, we're putting lots of data in, but it can be difficult to extract it. You know, you might use BI, so- mm-hmm. business intelligence software, or whatever. So how, how does a if I'm a clinician treating lung cancer at the Christie, how can I find out about the patients I've treated in the last six months, for example?
2: Yeah, it's evolved over time. Um, originally. Um, you know, we had clinical owners of each form and uh, those groups could, could just extract that those data as Excel and analyze it themselves. But we realized that clinicians need more support than that. So we quite early on, we did a clinical outcomes uh, business case and um, set, set up a whole process around that with with analytic support um, and and the intention and as to working through this uh, was to uh, effectively support every disease group and do annual reviews with them and present um, uh, data analytics on their outcomes with them and continually iterate to, to improve.
1: So, so these you know these are the sort of things that motivate people to use these systems aren't they because clinicians can be resistant but if the system is quite easy to use and you can get data out they're motivated. I mean, what what do you think, Jeff, that makes a good EPR and makes it acceptable?
0: Well, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head then that, that my experience is that people are quite reluctant to adopt clinical systems until they see what's in it for them. And at the end of the day, almost every clinician that I've worked with wants to know about their activity and the outcomes of their patients. And the second you demonstrate to clinicians that actually the data they're collecting can be fed straight back to them. So they do have an insight into how activity is changing over years and how um, outcomes are are changing and how those outcomes compare to national averages is when clinicians really start engaging in the data. And, you know, we continue to, to build and develop in that area. So, you know, we've got some recent grant funding and are now building sort of dashboards um, of, of levels of activity and outcomes, you know, based on open source software and R scripts, which means that clinicians can interact with dashboards, get kaplan meyer survival curves, return to them, see what the impact of, of a HER2 status is, or what the difference between stage one, two, three, and four is in outcomes. And at that moment, if you start presenting back to clinicians uh, missing data, then actually they realize that the reason the data is missing is because it's not been completed in the MDT or the clinic. And actually, you start to encourage the clinicians to collect better quality data. So it just starts building a virtuous circle. Yeah, exactly. So if you can get your data out, you're more inclined to put the effort to put good data yeah. in.
1: If you never see what you've put in again, you don't mind if it's rubbish. And, uh, yeah. and that's really important. Um I, I'm just just coming yeah. sorry
2: adam just to say on that i mean including analytics in the platform i think is very helpful um i mean if we if we are collecting data and remember we, we all work as teams and uh you know i, I often think about it this way ostensibly we're actually supporting the team to make sure that uh, we're all collecting data we're, we're not actually it's not a stick but uh you know when teams look at their data and they can see perhaps some aren't Uh, Filling in the forms as others are as a team, then there is a certain peer pressure and Mm. willingness for everybody to contribute. So having that, we we also found it with things like results acknowledgement, making sure that results are looking at uh, being looked at. Again, if you present team views as well as individual views, you can can see when people are on holiday and, and people start to ask questions and say, how can we reduce this risk and make sure that we're working and collaborating together. So yeah, I, and, 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 and results acknowledgement
1: it, Results acknowledgement is an absolute headache everywhere, you know, because it's mm. difficult. There's th- thousands of results coming in all the time. Does a consultant have to check every blood result on every patient registered under their name? Can you allow the chemotherapy nurses to do it or junior staff? And how do you reallocate results? I mean, it's an incredibly complex field. And if you've managed to get some way nailing mm. that, you've done a great job. Uh, yeah, very any- much a
2: task and finish approach. That just just constantly iterating through, and uh, again, the in-house approach that both uh, Jeff, Jeff Jeff and I have taken have enabled us to do that and uh, be very agile and and react. Um, you know, re- respond to these, which
1: you know, to, to be fair, some of the larger companies found more difficult. Yeah, and mm-hmm. as an aside, how have you managed? How how does the process work? Just in summary for people listening and thinking, how can we do it in our trust?
2: Uh, the process for results acknowledgement, uh, I mean, for us, I mean, it is actually identifying the problem to begin with. I mean, as a clinical lead, um, I, I was fortunate to, um to go through and do the do the clinical safety officer training, which is very important. Um and you know you don't necessarily have to solve the problem first of all you just have to identify the problem and sometimes risk assess it and that's what we did and that enabled us to say we actually identify it was one of the highest risks we had in the organization but how do you um, cope with the volume how does a
1: clinician, you know what does a clinician see when they log in how how, how as a consultant do i net go, do not get overwhelmed by millions of results on the 100 patients registered under my care for example i think that's a very good point i mean we
2: did go out for a commercial solution first of all and I, I sat in with all the clinicians explaining how they wanted it to work and that's when we realized there was a real gap in the market and none of the providers that uh, that came and demonstrated us really met that but uh, it is as i say working as a team um you know when you when you order a test if you've got order comms um you've got different members of your team ordering these and some some teams want the results to come back to the people that have ordered them and it's really important that when the results come back, you, you're able to filter and see it by that by that route, but also by team as well, um, also by location and by clinic, uh, and it's be able to cut and dice that data. Uh, but a lot of it is uh, it, it's not always technology. It's, it's it's sitting down with those teams and working out what works what works best for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, some of the systems that we've seen and some of the consultants say they do put all the onus on the consultant who, who you know, is often the leader of the team. But to do all the work and, uh, you know, I think it should be available for the, for the leader to be able to help manage their team um, and support them to, to use the tools to to make sure the patients yeah. are safe.
1: And talking more broadly about the, the market at the moment in EPRs, because obviously a lot of trusts have either bought a system or in thinking of buying a system or in process. And it does seem to come down to you've got some locally developed systems like you have in Leeds and Manchester, Southampton have got one, um, various other centres. Then you've got uh, the big providers. You've got the Cerner Epic from the States coming over with big, uh, expensive, but um, established software packages. The question is, first of all, can the NHS afford to have that sort of package in every trust? Um, then you've got local, you know, British providers such as uh, System C um, and various others. So, you know, how's the market going to shape up? Is it going to be taken over by a couple of big players? Are we going to have this diverse market? You know, is it something we need to be worrying about? What do you think, Jeff?
0: Well, the the first thing that concerns me is... um... Is the wide-scale adoption of the big US systems? Ultimately, the big US systems have been designed and developed to suit the business, to suit the business of US healthcare. Um, it, it, they, they are generally not NHS-based systems that support clinicians in delivering the care standards of the UK and of the NHS. And you know, some of the Amer- some of the US systems are are unable to collect national data sets that are absolutely critical to to care within within the nhs so i passionately believe in in nhs systems built for the nhs rather than the adoption and the forcing of clinicians to use systems that really weren't designed for the health market in which they work i i would love that i think it's i think it's very healthy that there is a a vibrant community of self-build EHRs, but I also think I'm not suggesting that actually every hospital should be building one. Um we have, you know, smaller hospitals near to us that are attempted to build their own EHR. And I have to say I would question uh why it is not better to just adopt one or two of the systems that are already out there and continue to work collaboratively in building those. You know, our ambition and aim really with with that the system we've built, PPM, was to make it as open as possible. And if other people wanted to adopt the system, then we were happy to share the system with them. We were happy to share any design um, that we had built and any learning that we'd established. We were happy to share with others. And I'd love there to be a community of people. In many ways, that's, that's how I first came to know Ridian. And the work they're doing at Christie, because there was another centre near to us that was doing very similar things, and it was just interesting to be able to to sort of feed off each other of what worked for them and what didn't work for us, uh, and apply some of the learning from other centres to our system. Mm. Do I think that everybody should be adopting Epic and Cerner? I mean, I literally is beyond me how how an NHS trust can afford those systems. I know Leeds it, it would is is absolutely unable to afford those systems.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that that it's interesting because some trusts have really stretched themselves to afford the system, as we've seen in Cambridge, where, you know, I don't know, 100, 150 million or something. I mean, extraordinary amounts of money. The only one positive thing to say is when they put those in, if you're spending that much money, there's no messing around about clinical engagement, about the trust being bought into the process because the chief execs are spending... You know they're putting forward a huge amount of NHS money and so they do it and they they make sure it's as pretty much as successful as it can be. Trouble is when you're doing a homegrown system or, or working with smaller suppliers, there's a much more drip feed of investment. Um and you know we've we found locally, you know, getting enough support for clinicians to get involved in the uh the rollout of eprs is difficult you know the, the trust is is always stretched for cash and they think do we really need to spend on this but you know i spoke to um at a meeting we had the ex-head of the american medical association come over and he was saying you know for an average size teaching trust in the states you'd have eight whole time equivalent clinicians just working on it you know that that number of sessions yeah. well we have nothing like that and then we wonder why the systems that get bought in and implemented aren't aren't necessarily implemented as well as they could be so um you know clinical engagement and now we have roles such as ccio's i think it's an improvement but it is it is something which trusts need to accept you know you can't just put in a system on the cheap can you i mean i suppose you've done it fairly cheaply in manchester but it's still to make it robust to make it safe it's, and to make it effective you've got to have some investment what do you what do you think ridian
2: I'd agree. I mean, certainly we have done it on the cheap and we made the case for further investments to be we long. I think one of the advantages of of the Epic and the, the big solutions is they do they do push you down that route. So you do have to um, structure the full business case and think of the support around it. And and some suppliers, I mean, Epic notably, uh, uh, really in, you know, insist on the amount of project resource that you put in to support this. I mean, one of one of the things. You know, is that balance between how much you're paying for the system and how much you're paying for the implementation, uh, and um, project managers, change managers, engagement, and uh, look at these business cases. They tend to be about you know it's one to three. So there's there's three times as much in that implementation aspect, and and those are the the projects that tend to succeed. That's that's what mm-hmm. the evidence shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Arch Collaborative. Um, I'm, I'm sure you both heard of this before. Was the is the work uh, done by Class uh, that uh, is one of the organisations that benchmarks. Uh, health IT and implementations Uh, and they have researched a number of organizations and and shown that uh, it's the actual system uh, is, is one of the lower discriminating factors uh, as to whether the, the, the clinicians uh, feel that they, they, you know, they, whether they, whether they like their system, whether they feel it's supporting them in their patient care. Uh, the three top ones were related to implementation, the top one being training and how well they are shown to use it. I mean, these are complex systems. The second bit, which I think we've, we've talked about a bit already with personalization, making it work for them, be able to, to adopt it to their particular pathways and collect the information they want. And the third was around the IT service and support that that you get around it, uh, and, and that really I think highlighted to me yeah. that that whole implementation aspect and and making sure you don't skimp on that bit when when you do the your business. Yeah, so I
1: remember seeing some of the data. You could have a CERNA center where 85% of people think it's good and acceptable, mm. and another center using CERNA, say about 20%. And it's clearly it's it's what version are they on? Have they implemented it properly? Have it been set up well? Is it well supported? Have the staff been trained? All that sort of thing. So. It doesn't matter what system you have, if you implement it badly, it's it's gonna fail, isn't it? Mm. Um the other thing, so so aside from EPR, so hopefully we're we gonna have a vibrant market in the UK in smaller providers, the big American providers, and, and a sort of a, a mixed economy. Um, we also need to share our data in the communities. So in the northeast, we've got the great northern care record. So I gather in Leeds, Jeff, from what you say, you've got GPs and um
0: secondary and primary care organisations sharing data through your system, is that right? Uh, Yes, that's right. So the Leeds Care Record, which is essentially the same PPM Plus platform, but if you are logging in from a GP surgery, um, if you have a legitimate relationship with that patient, you would then see the hospital record of that patient. Uh, if, when I'm sitting in, in the hospital, I can see elements from the GP record. So it, it's not the system that the GPs of Leeds are using. They're using their GP software. But data is is being called on request. We're using GP Connect. So we did some work with NHS Digital that at the point of care, a live call is made to the primary care system and it extracts the key information fields and displays that within the EHR uh, inside the hospital. So if you if so you see a
1: new patient in clinic, um, you can, can see their drug list within the record? I can see their
0: problems, diagnoses, medication, allergies. I can see the text of the consultation that the patient had with the GP an hour ago. And I have to say that has been transformative. Yeah. Uh, In the same way, the flip side of that is by using the Leeds Care Record, the GPs of Leeds now have access to radiology films because we've integrated our PAC system through our EHR which means that GPs can sit with patients and show them an arthritic hip and why they need to be referred for a hip replacement and it's interesting that GPs didn't know that they actually wanted that and then when they suddenly had that functionality they couldn't believe how useful it was to actually be able to see the x-rays within the Leeds care record so um yeah i mean just sharing that That, information that's fascinating
1: because i think locally we're we're looking at pack sharing We know we've struggled to even share between secondary care trusts that name gps and actually the gps seeing the imaging wasn't really brought up as a big um a big thing but again it's one of those once it's in place you realize how useful it is
0: yeah and and so we asked them whether whether they thought it was going to be useful and they all said no we never look at x-rays why would we want to look at x-rays they then suddenly found they could look at x-rays and now they think it's an essential feature. Yeah.
2: Mm. Especially for physio and uh, and teams like that as well. It's not always just GPs it's, yeah, it's no, the wider community.
0: Mm. Yeah, so
1: that's the thing you're not buying it's another thing to not buy an EPR for a trust in isolation. It's got to be seen how's it going to fit in with the whole network in the community. How's it going to integrate? And the problem is at the moment we've got you know people buying systems for the primary care or for sharing data in in um, between mm. GP practices we've got other people buying independently in different trusts different EPR systems and 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 a lot of times they've got a sort of we need to buy, buy something by the end of the financial year um, let's do it we, we don't necessarily speak to our neighbours about what we're buying and then they end up with one trust having one system another trust neighbouring with a different system and no coordination I mean it's striking in Leeds that you managed to coordinate across the patch which is you know fantastic really
0: yeah and 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 now that forms the basis of Leeds and Yorkshire and Humber being one of the the Lycras the the local healthcare record exemplars so these are the regional records and so uh, we have a Yorkshire and Humber Lycra that tries to share data across uh, the three regional centres for cancer of of Leeds Sheffield and Hull Um, and you know we have specifically chosen to build that uh, as a system of systems so actually each every each individual center is perfectly entitled to use whichever system they want but then with uh hl7 messaging and an integration engine that data can flow between centers so actually if i'm speaking to a clinician from another hospital we can both look at the same data data item but in our own system yeah. and of course we all know how to navigate our own system so
1: again you're using open standards standard Absolutely. ways of communicating between software and i suppose because you're developing your own system the the other problem when you're working with commercial providers is they might charge a huge amount of money for an API to make one system talk to another system. And I suppose you can do that a little easier.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, you know, we, we had a team that had built the expertise to do that sort of thing. So an integration team that was quite capable of of developing APIs and the necessary fire messaging. And, and you know, when you suddenly meet another organization, so within our region, Rotherham Hospital had a a, a fabulous team running their systems, and it took about three weeks to get data flowing between Rotherham Hospital and Leeds Hospital. Um, And it just shows that when you have organizations that are committed to the principles of sharing data in common, using common open standards, it actually is not complicated. It's when actually you have a commercial organization who wants you to buy into their commercial platform and you have to do it their way, suddenly it stops working.
1: Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, we could talk about all sorts of issues. One other thing I just want to bring up, because we're talking about it locally, is advice and guidance systems. So when you've got systems to allow GPs to get advice from secondary care and decide, do I need to refer the patient? Do I need to start on some medication? Do I need to do something else?
0: Have you built in that into your system, Jeff? Um, So it's absolutely, uh, you know, I hate to to use the C word, but in, in the absence of COVID, that might have been developed in 2020 because... the advice and guidance was something that we were desperate to bring in. One of the things that comes from having a really small development team is you have to spend quite a lot of time thinking about this stuff before you just sit down and start developing. And what we realized with advice and guidance is actually it's exactly the same as a referral. And it's actually exactly the same as an MDT review. So an MDT review is an advice and guidance request from a team as opposed to an advice and guidance from a clinical service. And actually, what we were desperately looking to do is to build in an advice and guidance request, the end result of which may be a clinician saying, the only advice I can give to this patient is by seeing them in clinic. So the, the the advice is, I need to see that patient. And suddenly, the advice and guidance request becomes a referral to be seen in the hospital. But actually, if we build it as one process, then actually we can reuse that functionality throughout the system. I mean, the challenge that we have, of course, is that... You know, the the requests for advice and guidance are made from GP desks and therefore they want to use their system. So once again, it's coming up with those open standards and the the messages that allows people in, in primary care to generate a request for advice and guidance that gets displayed in our system. And then we can feed that into you know, automated referral systems. You know, that's one of the problems we encountered was the insistence from NHS Digital that we had to use their electronic referral service rather than build our own system that delivered the same functionality. And at one level, we're happy to do that if they would open up the standards and the API so we could hook our system into their system.
1: Yeah, and again, it's looking at the whole architecture of the local system. It's not buying a package and just plugging it in somewhere randomly. It's seeing the overall system and how how that's going to fit in. I mean, one thing I worry about advice and guidance is like everything, <clears throat> if you lower, you know, if you make it very easy to ask questions, just as we discover with email, you know, we now get emailed as clinicians all the time from junior colleagues, nurses, can you ask you about this patient, can I ask you about that patient? If we bring advice and guidance in, that'll be a whole host of potentially primary care questions that otherwise would have maybe not been asked or, you know, so you're going to have to look at workflows and, make sure you're not just increasing workload without having clinical support. I mean, how are you dealing with Iridium? Are you doing anything about that in Manchester?
2: Well, we are. I mean, from my perspective, it's interesting having worked as a uh, you know secondary tertiary care CCIO and working with a national program rolling out packs. My my current role is working more at the integrated care system level, working with the Cancer Alliance, and it, it is refreshing being able to look across the whole pathway and flow of these patients. So we we are working you know very closely with primary care to, to try and address this. And uh, I have got a cancer hat on now, um, working with the, the Greater Manchester Cancer Alliance, uh, Greater Manchester Cancer. So, so we, these these forms are going in, um, and we also see what's happening from an innovation perspective across all the cancer alliances and the various companies that are integrating in, uh, so they can incorporate this and integrate with the e-referral service. So, you know, feeling positive that you know progress is being made in this area.
1: Yeah, and um, it's, 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 it's not necessarily as easy, led it by. Might sound you know you think oh it should be easy we just stick in a you know give everyone the phone number of the consultant cardiologist and they can just ring them up it's it's not that easy you have to have an infrastructure don't you
2: that's right i mean going back to the epr discussion i mean the eprs are are traditionally when we think about it you know secondary uh, provider care organizations you know, if we look at the investment that happened at integrated care system level and looking at all those flows of pathways, it's it's really a fraction of of the, the investment that's being made in secondary care. If you, you know, we talked about 200 million pounds for a, a single trust EPR. Whereas you know we look at some of the the Lycra the local integrated healthcare record projects and that you know a fraction of that uh, funding yeah. has been spent and I think you know just from a political perspective I think I think we probably need to address the balance a bit and and look and spend more time and effort joining um, organisations up so yeah. that uh, we we have got and of course share good pathways.
1: practice so where people like you know where Leeds have have nailed it or the Great North Care Record where they're doing some good work we just need to share that good practice. Just moving on a bit, um, there's a lot of app developers. When you go to, you know, I find you go to an IT conference, it's a bit like you go to an oncology conference. You have lots of pharma representatives there. You go to an IT conference, you get loads of small app developers, IT companies. Now it's pretty difficult. You know, lots of people have great ideas for apps, but if they're not compatible with the EPRs from the big providers, or you know, they that's the problem at the moment. It's quite difficult for small app developers to join the market. How, how do you see? How do you see that happening, Iridium?
0: Well, oh, sorry, Jeff, <laughs> well, Jeff you you're about to start. <laughs> um, so, at one point, I, I completely embrace, um, you know, their, their interest and and they their function because there's absolutely no way that we as a hospital team can develop everything, and in many ways, our system already integrates other applications. So. As I said, we have a pack system at the hospital, but that pack system is just integrated into our EHR. We didn't build the EHR functionality. And, and in many ways, it's that's the trick, is having a platform that's capable of dropping somebody else's application. Um, using you know, t- technical methods that I couldn't begin to describe, we now we have a platform where actually we can meet with app developers and tell them how our platform works. And actually, the app developers can then just make sure that their data either feeds directly into our data model or actually more directly, they can embed their app inside our system. The classic the classic area for that is uh, patient reported outcomes uh, and patient reported data. And at one level, I think our view on that is that, you know, there's many, many providers of those apps, as there should be, because no one app will suit every individual. So you know, all of my patients should be able to choose whichever app they want to use. But ultimately, I need to see all of the data they're collecting in my platform. So the closer the relationship between EHR developers and, you know, the enormous army of app developers, um, the better from my point of view. Mm. I think that's an interesting point because I think a lot of uh,
1: a lot of regions will think, oh, we're going to buy one app and it's going to do all the jobs. But actually, that's not going to happen. And it, and if you do, it'll be a compromise, won't it? Because you probably... You know, if you've got a COPD patient, they might want a different app from somebody with Addison's disease who wants a monetary condition and a different from a breast cancer patient. And it's very unlikely you're going to have one app or one app provider that can do all that perfectly. And if you, if you can, if we can develop a marketing app so that. There's a brilliant diabetes app, for example, that will integrate with an EPR, and there's a brilliant cancer app or whatever. I think that's the way it's going to to go eventually. But the market's sort of not not quite sure it's going at the moment. There's there's a sort of a, a mixture of do we go with one app provided to try and do everything, or do we have a, a marketplace like the Apple App Store with loads of providers? But it's got to it's got to work with the systems, and uh, you know, that, hopefully that's how it will develop. I don't know what you think, Ridian.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the, the app providers will, will develop something to meet a gap in the market or, or a clinical need and, you know, they do add value, um, but you have to think to the long term, uh, you don't want to collect data in a, a separate silo that's not integrated in. Um, so, you know, the, the, those app providers also have to then build on that initial user base they've got and uh, and work very closely with with other providers to link that in. Um, but I bet that does provide a healthy marketplace if they can do that. But I appreciate it's it's very difficult for them. But in some ways, what, what we did locally in developing our EPR was very much along
1: along those similar lines. Yeah. So and it, I suppose it's possible. The difficulty is there's not a lot of money in the system. You know, the advantage the Americans have, health American healthcare has got a huge budget, and the insurance companies are throwing huge amounts of money around. The NHS is not like that, and it's quite difficult for the EPR providers and the app providers and everyone else to make it make the numbers stack up. And I think that's a challenge. You know, if if you pay peanuts, you don't you're not going to get a brilliant result back. So, you know, that's the danger of a fragmented market, I suppose. We we do often think of apps though as standalone, non-integrated, non-integrated solutions.
2: But you know the NHS app and and, and other apps as they're coming out now can show that you can form uh, uh, an integrated solution. I mean, if you think really about the NHS app uh, and and the GP systems that uh, that have developed their own apps, they, they are pulling in data from yeah uh, from multiple sources. Uh, right. you know, it's really really quite an achievement that you know when you just it just works, doesn't it? You log on. And uh, you, can, you can envisage where that might take you with this this single exactly. sign-on. You can have an EMIS patient access. You can have
1: the EMIS patient access app and see your GP records, but also have the NHS app and see your GP records. It's just a different front end, but it's the same data. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, uh, just coming towards the end now, um, NHSX obviously was set up by Matt Hancock. I mean, it, what would your, if you were in charge, if you were the head of NHSX, Ridian, what would your, what would you be telling them? What would your priorities be?
2: I, I certainly don't envy the, the leaders <laughs> at the top there to, to be to be able to choose priorities. I mean, you yeah, know, I, I try and look at all of this positively and certainly those we've engaged with are all working very hard to achieve this. They've set out priorities and uh, these have been discussed at various forums we go to into CCIO forums and, and we've all um, uh, backed those priorities and, and helped contribute to them so um you know i would like to support my colleagues in nhsx in what they're delivering you know if i was going to bang some drums we've talked about integration and uh i think all work about trying to uh, uh, interoperability to support uh you know care pathways beyond individual organizations i think would be a key area that we, that we need to look at um Yeah, I'd like to to see what Jeff thinks. We can feed off each other here, but I don't want to give a long list.
0: (laughs) Um, So it's absolutely all about interoperability and and standards. And I guess the one thing that we haven't talked about is the concept of a common data model. So I don't care what system Mm. people are using. But if actually I knew that data being collected in Leeds was the same as the data that was being collected in Manchester, which was the same as the national system needed, what one of my great frustrations is that actually the national cancer audit, so SACT, COSDI, um, and all the other sort of cancer two week weights, they have subtly different definitions of the data they want, and therefore, you know, the inconsistency that that's that's present in that creates an enormous waste of time, effort, and resource. And actually, if we could just agree the core elements that are required and actually use whichever system you want, but this is how the data must sit, therefore, when the data is extracted from that system, we can then share analytic scripts between us because our data is all going to be in the same form. So what NHSX should be doing is defining the data model, the standards, the interoperability, and then just allow the market to develop. Yeah. Um, but it should be setting the rules down um, by which those apps work and share data between each other. Absolutely. So, I, I
2: fully agree there. And, and it goes beyond yeah. NHSX. though. the the, data, the, the standards organisations that, that set these uh, are much broader. Even in My work with the college in uh, developing the uh, single set of radiology procedure codes throughout the country has enabled us to transfer images around. Image Exchange Portal, etc. It's uh, it, it's 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 all of us. It's it's not just beholden on NHSX to to work together yeah. and try and try and standardise them. I mean, just even now yeah. just the work that I do locally is trying to make sure that we're all collecting data in a similar way so we can work as a as a one service
1: yeah, across Manchester all got to be out. speaking the same language yeah. um and finally just um you know some people listening to this will be um interested in IT already or working in the IT field but also there'll be some clinicians listening who, who haven't got involved in this at all or just a little bit I mean just um just talk a little bit Jeff about How how did you get into this? And what do you think the value is in clinicians getting engaged with this? Why shouldn't they just
0: stick to their day job? So as I've reflected on, on why do I do what I do, I've sort of become aware that I'm actually the son of an IBM systems engineer. So I grew up and did have the first computer on our street. And when I went to university, my dad bought me a personal computer to help me do my research project. I was the first person I knew within my year at medical school who had a personal computer in their in their bedroom. So when I started working clinically it was just completely obvious to me that clinical care needed to be delivered um, needed to be based around computer-based systems and you know I can remember spending one weekend developing a word perfect based system that came up with the the idea of each patient having a file and you know we thought that that might last about six or eight weeks and it it actually the letters from that system are still present in ppm so uh, you know i i just think that you know i I my background is actually i did a lab-based phd sort of molecular biology of cancer um and and be, after becoming a consultant worked as a clinician scientist with people in in a wet lab and actually realized that you know, and was was guided by senior mentors. That you know, I was I'm happy to accept their criticism. An average um, clinician scientist in the lab, but actually the stuff that I was doing in informatics was to them incredibly innovative, and to me was just very routine and straightforward. And and realised that actually I should just follow my interest and my passion, and 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 work with and within informatics, because ultimately for me providing excellent care to patients is utterly dependent on having excellent information. So information systems is what personalised medicine is about. Personalised medicine to me is not about what genetic polymorphism does a patient have. Personalised medicine is having that absolutely unique view of an individual patient that comes from hundreds of factors that ultimately are embedded somewhere within the record and if we make those data items available for analysis, that is where artificial intelligence and machine learning will augment the clinician. So I like the definition of AI as augmented intelligence. So a clinician and a computer work alongside each other. That within the limited time that we have to see a patient, we can go straight to the heart of the matter and work out what are the three most important things uh, to deal with today and so and we're going to have to know. have that sort of
1: decision support because it's becoming more and more complex isn't it there's more treat, you know we know more about the genetics of the patient there are more treatment options and there's no it's going to become to, to a level where no clinician can remember it all but you, you hmm. want to be the intermediary so the system says this patient you should talk about these five treatments and then it's up to us to balance the risk benefits this the individual patient circumstances Mm. etc and make a recommendation to the patient I mean what you've sort of talked about is that you've played to your strengths your strengths was informatics as well as being an oncologist Mm. and so you've combined the two and um, and in doing so you've you know influenced the management of a lot of patients and it's a bit like Pete Selby in the last podcast talked about him getting involved in medical politics meant that he Inf- and, and and sort of national guidance and the ncri things like that meant that he affected a huge number of patients rather than just just the individual patients he was seeing in clinic mm. and, and riddian your you know your your sort of take a message or how why you got involved in it and, and what you've got from it
2: well well, healthcare is not just a, you know, an individual clinician working with their patients you know it's it's a team approach now uh building on that initial uh, you know, human interaction that we have, and you need to, to, uh, tools to support you working together. Um, there is the the constant trying to improve your service as a team uh, and what you're doing, but there's also looking at the data and the wealth of information that's out there and trying to work out well, what is that data telling us, uh, how can we improve our care based on that. And, uh, I, I got into it really because I had done some computing and various things at uh, at school and um, maintained that interest and I, I had a certain skill set that enabled me to uh, to take some of that and su- support my colleagues, whether it was through initially just developing some forums so we could discuss and uh, and help move projects forwards or, or through uh, rotor systems. And uh, I, I found it uh, incredibly <laughs> rewarding when I, I moved that into the patient systems and you could really see the benefit and we started to analyze the benefits of some of the work that we're doing you know in yeah. safety and so, so it is a way to really support and work closely with your colleagues you know take it a level above with what you can do just individually in your your, your day job and yeah. I, I would encourage anybody that's got that motivation to think how can we improve what we can do you know in, in our area to, to improve our service uh, and i would encourage them to to, to get involved in this field you don't have to be technical to do it Uh, you can you can work very closely with technical colleagues as long as you've got that will if I can
0: just come in there because I think that's a really important point to make you actually don't have to have any technical expertise to be incredibly valuable Hmm. in informatics development and I work with a couple of people who who absolutely pride themselves in having no understanding of the technology whatsoever but they absolutely know what the system needs to do And they recognize good when they see it. So having those people, those are some of the most helpful people to develop develop systems with because they know what's good and what's bad. Mm. They don't know why it's good or why it's bad, but they can tell you, absolutely, I'm never using that. That's rubbish. And you go away and do it again. So, yeah, because if you've got you, some
1: people who are very good at coding or database creation, they're not necessarily the best people to tell you what makes a good user interface for a clinician in a clinic or what makes yeah, a, because, a good user interface know, on an app for a patient. Yeah,
0: and that's you know that's where you get the sort of the classic yeah. computer developer sits there in a darkened room working, in, you know in in computer script on at, at a command line. Uh, yeah. and none of us want to do that we no. just want easy applications to work with and, and, and maybe and that's what some
1: of the problem we have with you know some commercial providers in all in all you know i'm not talking about eprs but all of the um digital uh, services we have they they often go away they they come back with something six months later and you go well, actually that's not how we work you know that doesn't that's not easy to use that's not logical but they're very proud of the coding they've done and, and it's that disconnect which can be a major problem so see so yeah, I think it's important that you know we have clinicians and we have people who are as you say not technically astute but know how how services work and the other thing of course is all this digital, digital stuff goes through all the service improvements you know if you want to do a service improvement in your hospital it's very unlikely it's going to be completely divorced from any of the digital packages as banks have realised as supermarkets have realised, you know, in other walks of life, it's absolutely standard that there's IT services behind it. But in the NHS, we've been a little bit slower. But uh, now I think that's okay. um, been really interesting and useful um, discussion. Have you got any any final points to make before we wrap up?
2: I did Just building on what you were saying there, I, I, I think... Having technical skills, I I mean, obviously, I've I've used mine to my strengths uh, to do that. I I think it does help if you've got them, but you don't need them. Um, People who have got analytical skills who who understand statistics, can look at the data and uh, write reports from it. That's equally important. People that really understand how to motivate their colleagues and bring about change. All of that's important so if you can bring any of those attributes to this you know and or you've got any of those this this is a real interesting yeah. field to, to and be it's in. an exciting
1: time because the technology is such now that we can do really great things that maybe 10 years ago you know we didn't have phones that could do everything like they can now or tablets and you know we are at a stage where this stuff could be really brilliant but it's just taking a while to get there isn't it mm. Okay, well, thanks very much. That's a really interesting conversation. I hope uh, I hope it generates some thoughts in people who've listened. And uh, you never know me; we might get together again and do a, another one in a in a little while, in a year's time, and just see where we're at. So, so thanks very much, both of you. My pleasure. Thank you, Adam. Okay, so I hope you found uh, that episode interesting. It went on a little bit longer than um, I planned, but I think we covered a lot of. Uh, useful information hopefully and uh, I'd encourage you to get involved locally in your own trust um, in the battle to try and make these uh, IT systems work better for us and and to provide better care for our patients. Next month I'm going to do something a bit different. I'm hoping to interview um, somebody who's quite big in the field of psychosocial oncology and patient reported outcome measures, a a very important subject, so I hope you'll come back to listen to that one. And feel free to um, leave a review um, at your podcast provider's uh, website. Otherwise, I'll see you next month. Um, Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.